Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and of course, James Holland. Uh, and James, we're, we're very fortunate to be joined by a guest. Um, uh, you do the introductions as, as per normal. Well, we've got Mark Milner here today, and Mark was uh, first hit my radar about a decade or so ago when Steve Prince, who's obviously a friend of the pod and who is the head of the Naval Historical Branch, said, if you want to read the single best um, account of the Battle of the Atlantic you need to read Mark Milner's book on the Battle of the Atlantic so I went and read it and I completely agree it's an absolutely fantastic book and if anyone wants to know about the Battle of the Atlantic that is the book to get now Mark is a Canadian historian and it's absolutely brilliant that he's here to talk to us today and he's written loads of other books and not least Stopping the Panzers and uh, we talked about that didn't we Mark at uh, when you were when you and I were last at New Orleans I think it was and this is about the Canadian counterattack uh, on the 7th of June stopping the 12th SS but we're going to park that one for now because uh, we'd love you to come back and talk <laughs> about that one because I know there's loads of stuff to say about that and we never get tired of talking about Normandy but today let's focus on the Battle of the Atlantic a, a subject that we just don't talk about enough particularly since you and I are going on about about how important it is well yes James I mean your refrain is no one no it doesn't get talked about enough it's the most important theory of the war and then we don't talk about it so <laughs> <laughs> it's very true that, that's a familiar refrain that I've heard very often in working in the field Really important, really important. Now let's move on to something else. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes it's lonely being a naval historian in the Atlantic War, I'm here to tell you. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, lo lonely being out in the middle of the Atlantic, lonely studying it, I guess. Yes, there are very few of us. I mean, first things first, why do you think that's the case? Well, I, I think it's the case because it, it's a huge and complex war. It, um, it, it's a misnomer. It's not the Battle of the Atlantic. That was Winston Churchill's phrase from March of 1941 when he said, the Battle of the Atlantic has started. He was thinking of a discrete battle like Trafalgar or Jutland or something like that. I've, I've come in recent years to, uh, to stop using that phrase and call it the Atlantic War because it lasts for six years and it's, it spirals all over the ocean. And um, uh, the objectives for the Germans change as the war changes. So it's not a single event. It's not a discrete moment. It's not a, um, uh, you know, if, 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 if the Germans had done this, then that would have happened. Um, it, it's very complex. And when you get right into the heart of it, when you get beyond the shooting war, uh, of which compared to the amount of shipping moved, there was really precious little. It was very dramatic. But, you know, um, I talked to, to sailors now long dead who spent the war on the Atlantic and never saw a ship torpedoed. So there's a lot of ennui in the Atlantic War. And uh, historians, as, um, as Sir Julian Corbett said, 
are greedy of dramatic effect. So they tend to, you know, head for the battles. When you talk about the Atlantic War, it gets far more complicated. And I used to put, at the risk of prattling on, I used to put a, a question to my graduate students as an essay question, resolve that the single most decisive element in the Battle of the Atlantic in 1942 was a good British anti-tank gun and a doctrine to use it. And uh, that takes you a long way from the middle of the North Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but, but it, it is true, isn't it? I think something like 80 to 85 percent of all convoys crossed the Atlantic were completely unscathed. I talked to one veteran on a Canadian frigate, Wentworth, who made three crossings of the North Atlantic in, well, admittedly 1944. Never saw the convoy. They joined in fog on radar. They were a distant screen and it came back and forth three times. Um, there were moments, and, and we focus on those, when the action is very intense and almost relentless, but they are quite discreet. And for the most part, the Atlantic War is about moving stuff. And the bottlenecks, as many historians before me have pointed out, from Cynthia Behrens to Martin Dowdy to others, are often in the dockyards and in the railheads and with shortage of stevedores and um, the shipping's in the wrong place, kind of like the modern situation where all the containers aren't where we want them to be and all the ships are waiting to be unloaded. Um, so the Germans... <laughs> Not HGV drivers. That's right. The, the, Germans, uh, the Germans add to the confusion, but uh, historians have tended to draw a straight line between um, the declining imports and German success at sea without looking at other things. That's fascinating. Because after all, transporting stuff by convoy necessarily complicates matters, doesn't it? In your ports and harbours, doesn't it? It does. It creates a kind of boom and bust cycle. And um, it, it took them a long time. Martin Doughty's little book he did years ago on merchant shipping um, uh, focuses on that problem in the UK after the fall of France. And it's a, an important little book and much neglected because he points out that it, to, to get British imports back to where they needed to be, you had to reorient Britain's uh, import uh, situation. You had to move dockyard workers from Southampton to Liverpool and you had to reorient um, uh, rail yards and we had to, had to move cranes and you needed space. And uh, it just took Britain about a year to reorient from using the ports on the East Coast as the major entrepot to shifting right. to the West Coast. And that had a profound impact on the rate of imports. And uh, the Germans confuse and confound that. But that that's all about the Luftwaffe and the Wehrmacht, not about the Kriegsmarine. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, Mark, can you just give us in sort of, I don't know, three, two minutes, a kind of sort of rough kind of plotted history of, of the Battle of the Atlantic, the highs and lows between kind of, you know, the outset in 1939 to the happy time of 1940 to kind of, you know, winning of the, the U-boat war in May 1943? Sure. I can give you, a, oh, I'll take it right through to 45 if you want. Sure. Um, the, um, <laughs> the war starts obviously in September of 39 and the Germans are just not ready for a war at sea. We all know that. And Raider says the only thing we can do is die gallantly. Um, there had been writing in the period between the wars about, you know, by a guy named Wolfgang Wegener. If we could just get ports in France or, you know, or Norway, we could bust out of this kind of bottle we're in in the North Sea. And they get those in the summer of 1940. And what explodes on the on the, the North Atlantic in the fall of that year, the first happy time, is not only ease of access uh, by the Germans to Britain's major shipping lanes. It's, it's during its innovative tactics of using submarines essentially as motor torpedo boats in wolf packs in the North Atlantic. Nobody thought he would do that. Um, everyone thought they would obey international law. 
and uh, U-boats would operate inshore and all that kind of good stuff. So there is this really dramatic period of the first happy time in the winter of 4041, when uh, some convoys get very nearly slaughtered, very nearly wiped out. But the Germans don't have very many submarines. I've made that point in a number of publications. Yeah. No uh, more than I think, 13 at any point in the summer of Well, and in January, there's only eight at sea, January That's of 41. Incredible. Well, so it's not very many. I've argued in a couple of places the biggest threat in the winter of 40 and 41 is Hipper, Scharnhorst, and Eisenhow and the threat of Bismarck coming out because there's a period there in the winter where Scharnhorst and Eisenhow and uh, I think it's Hipper are loose in the North Atlantic. And uh, the Germans are pulling the lion's tail all over the North Atlantic. They're not engaged, but there's, there is a process of disruption of shipping, which adds to the, the reduction of imports. Now, I've never seen a good study of what that uh, disruption actually means, but a lot of evasive routing, a lot of delayed sailings. Um, that period tends to culminate with the sinking of the Bismarck in May of 1941. Everyone writes off the surface threat. Uh, historians can afford to do that. The Royal Navy never could because Tirpitz is looming. Scharnhorst and Eisenhower are in French ports. The Germans could pop some cruisers out. So there's still a multiple threat to, uh, to British shipping in the spring and summer of 1941. Um, it's tough for the Germans because of uh, broad daylight in the high latitudes and increasingly effective radar, which is really what does Bismarck in. So there is that period then when the Germans don't win the Battle of the Atlantic. And an American historian named Max Schoenfeld many, many years ago wrote an article that said the situation got better for the British despite Churchill's efforts because the weather got better and uh, the, the weather damage to shipping was reduced. The submarines could be found. The shipping traveled a more direct route and, you know, and on and on and on. So there is a cyclical nature to the Atlantic War, which is affected by weather. And that's really the first manifestation of it. And this is this is also this is the cruel sea, right? I mean, you know, this yeah. is uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Germans do better in in, in bad weather as a rule, uh, and less well when it's fair. Okay, so that puts you into the fall of '41. Uh, there is a little campaign on the North Atlantic. The Americans get involved before Pearl Harbor. Um, the Canadians get stuck with the slow convoys, which we could talk about. Uh, Hitler gets panicked a little bit, sends submarines into the Med, sends submarines off to uh, off to Norway, and the Brits actually resolve the tactical problems of uh, of how to defend convoys. Uh, in December of 41, when they get HFDF, 10-centimeter radar, they get some escorts, they begin to pull it together. And I think it's HG-76, a Gibraltar convoy, where they actually are able to knit it all together. And then you have that terrible hiatus or the terrible second happy time, which is just inexplicably disastrous, which is the first six to eight months of 1942, when the Americans just, uh, I don't know, uh, go comatose and... Um, and the U-boats run amok on the American East Coast. Uh, it's not like it was a surprise. Uh, the Americans simply refused to introduce a system of escorted convoys. And the example that I've often used, because Anglo-American historians, strangely enough, uh, are not uh, intellectually interested as a rule in what the Canadians are doing. But there's about a thousand mile, thousand kilometer stretch off Nova Scotia and Newfoundland that the RCN puts into um, convoy. And they were saying, oh, well, it's the Canadian zone. Nothing happens in the Canadian zone. Well, it was about four or 500 ships a month pass off the coast of Nova Scotia. But the Germans find it easier to find the shipping and sink it off the American coast. And they sink a prodigious amount of shipping. Everybody talks about attacking American shipping. There's about 6 million tons of merchant shipping lost off the U.S. East Coast in 1942. Um, and about 60% of that is British. 
or British chartered or British controlled, and another 10 or 12% are South Americans. So the amount of American shipping that's lost comparatively is really quite small. And I've been doing some work on, um, on the American Office of War Information. And uh, the way they decided to handle that uh, in, in a public relations way uh, in the spring of 1942, and I've got chapter and verse on this, was uh, this is guidance for American newspapers. Uh, tell them not to worry about the losses. They really don't matter because we're just going to build more ships than they can sink. And the Americans do, but they declined to give any to the British. We can talk about that. So there's that disaster in the spring of 42, and eventually the Americans introduced a system of escorted convoy. The Canadians and the British could have done that right from the get-go because they control naval control of shipping and naval intelligence in the region. We could talk about that too. Uh, but anyway, eventually they do, and then they come back into the Mid-Atlantic, which is the only place Dernitz can use as little Type 7 submarines with any real effect because they're just little motor torpedo boats. They can't go very far. If you send them to the Caribbean, they have a fairly short radius of action. They can't stay. But he can swarm the mid-ocean, and he does in the winter of 42-43. And at one point, there were well over 100 submarines operating in the mid-ocean air gap in the, in the winter of 1943. And it's impossible to avoid them. Uh, and what saves the Allies, and we can talk about uh, special intelligence, is not simply breaking the code, which they hadn't been able to read really for a year, uh, but modern radar, more escorts, and um, and the advent of very long-range patrol aircraft. And the Germans get absolutely hammered, as you well know, in the spring of 43. Uh, a little bit in April, but in May, they, they lose about 40, oh, I think it's 47 submarines they lose in May alone, including one carrying doing its son to the bottom. The Germans have no answer for this because their whole submarine fleet has been based on... Um, uh, you may recall the old uh, film that uh, was done many years ago in the World at War, where you have Admiral Dernitz sitting in his in his uh, in his wing chair being interviewed, and he said the Germans had lost uh, critical ability of surface maneuverability. Well, if you take the surface away from an air-breathing submarine or one that has to operate on the surface, there's no place to go. There's a denouement in the fall of '43 when they come back with acoustic homing torpedoes and heavier anti-aircraft stuff and try to shoot their way back in. Uh, but they just get absolutely hammered. And so what you end up with, as one of my colleagues, Roger Sardi, described it, is uh, an 18th-month-long, 18th month nearly two-year-long campaign of guerrilla boats where the Germans begin to act like modern submarines uh, operating almost fully submerged using snorkel and increasingly moving inshore where it's comparatively easy to find targets. You let them come to you as opposed to searching them out. So for the Germans, it's kind of like a big constant sine wave of success, failure, success, failure, success, failure. But the Allies do outbuild the Germans in merchant shipping. And um, there, there is really no point that I've been able to determine where the development of Allied strategy was embarrassed by uh, the German attack on merchant shipping. Um, the, the British were, I think, impoverished by the attack on merchant shipping. It cost them enormously in wealth. Uh, but it, I can't see any place where it really hinders the war effort uh, in, in ways that would have been substantial. That's a masterclass um, precy, I've got to say, and so much <laughs> to talk about on the basis of well, that. I say it's six-year war. So why don't the Americans convoy at the start of 1942? What's going on? Are they, are they, are they too, um, after all, the Allied phases of the war tend to be you get caught with your trousers down, you, you figure out how to pull them up and then eventually keep them up and then and then get on with actually doing doing the business of 
figuring out how to defeat the enemy. Is this because the American the American Navy is very much looking east, um, to, to the east rather, um, just looking west to the east, if you see what I mean, to the Pacific? Listen, historians have, historians have argued about this for the last 70 years, and um, it, here's my take on it for what it's worth. The uh, Board on the Organization of East Coast Convoys, that's what it was called, the Board on the Organization of East Coast Convoys, reported in March of 1942 that a poorly escorted convoy was worse than none. And it was better to disperse shipping, sounds like 1917 all over again, yeah, yeah, than yeah, it yeah, was yeah, yeah. to gather them together so they would all be an easy target. And I would say two, maybe three things like the Monty Python skip. Two, three. Um, yeah, yeah. One, the Americans had experience in the North Atlantic. They had their own experience. And in the fall of 41, they, they fought alongside the struggling Royal Canadian Navy in the Western Atlantic. And uh, Canadian escorted convoys were invariably weakly escorted convoys. They were the slow convoys. We had, had a bunch of Corvettes, which were not very well equipped. We didn't have... Uh, they had some primitive early radar. We usually only had one destroyer per. And if you go down the list of all the convoys that get hammered in the fall of 41, they're almost invariably Canadian and they're weakly escorted. And I think the Americans um, uh, took that lesson to heart in ways that simply being told that convoy is better um, uh, couldn't overcome. The second is that their doctrine right from the get-go, their uh, uh, escort of convoy instructions issued in November of 41, said specifically that defense of the convoy was the last task of the escort. The primary function of the escort is to find the enemy and destroy him because every ship is safe from a dead U-boat. It's very Mahanian, right? Very Mahanist. The third thing I would say, and then I'll, and I'll, I'll let you go, uh, and you can ask me some more, is the Americans did not distinguish between convoys under air escort and convoys which were not. They thought of a convoy as a convoy as a convoy. And by 42, the Brits and the Canadians have come to realize that if you put a convoy under air escort, it doesn't have to be effective. And eventually the Americans escort convoys with, um, with balloons, non-rigid airships in the Caribbean. You can imagine being attacked by a, a USN balloon, some guy in a basket with a 50 caliber machine gun. And you're on the deck of a submarine. And you look up and you go, holy shit. Okay, guys, we got 20 minutes. Everybody get below while this airbag tries to descend. But it, the crucial thing is you can't operate wolf packs under an effective uh, air, um, air umbrella with a couple of exceptions. Uh, and the Canadians and the Brits began to realize that. So if you put ships into a convoy and you put them under an effective air umbrella, you're going to get attacked by one submarine. It's going to get one pass, it's going to sink one ship. If you take those 40 ships and you string them out, as the Americans did, along protected routes on the East Coast, that one submarine is never going to encounter more than one ship at one time, but it will get a continuous stream of targets. And the Americans very cleverly paced, spaced the ships out so you couldn't see from one ship to the next. So you knew when you encountered a ship in the American safe zone that nobody was coming for an hour. And then, but there would be another ship in about an hour. And then the patrols would come with, you know, clockwork routine. So the protected zones actually made it ex extraordinarily safe for Germans to operate inshore. So there's a doctrinal pre predisposition against convoys. There's an uh, experiential, if you like, predisposition against convoys. And I think there's a failure to understand the fundamental defensive and we would now call it shaping operational nature of a convoy. 
Yeah, it concentrates ships, but it also concentrates your defenses. So you haven't got them all strung up. It's, it's gonna, ironic, gonna... though, isn't it, Mark? Because because in the air, that's exactly what they're doing. I mean, you know, daylight bombing is all about creating a convoy of bombers, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. But you're talking about the U.S. Navy, and um, the U.S. Navy is not prepared for the Atlantic War. Uh, they don't have a. They don't even have a um, a single depth charge drill for the whole Navy worked out yet. So every ship gets to work out, you know, what it's going to do and how it's going to do it. Um, they simply have not um, approached the, the issue of defensive merchant shipping in the way the British Empire was forced to in 1917, 1918, or oh, the Great War. And the way the Brits did very successfully in the interwar period and at the start of the war. Because they knew they were going to operate from a position of weakness. They knew the crucial thing was going to be moving the trade and getting the ships through. And they knew that the bedrock of that was going to be escorted convoy because escorted convoy gives you sustainable losses as a rule. It's not a zero-sum game. You can't eliminate all of them, but you can you can manage. So the British were managers. But do you also think that, that, that from the U.S. Navy point of view, they're also thinking, you know, it's a hell of a long way for a U-boat to come. It doesn't really make an awful lot of sense for them to come all the way from the, from the Baltic all the way to the east coast of America. So that's not really a particularly obvious threat. High risk. Yeah, you know, at the planning stage of kind of 1941 when they're involved in the Battle of the Atlantic and, you know, even earlier than that. Well, don't forget, uh, you cruisers have made it to the Western Atlantic in the um, in the First World War. And the Americans certainly had submarines of a size that could could span the uh, the Pacific. And the the the, uh, the basic capabilities of the German Type Nines were well known, big subs, but long range. I think if if there was a surprise at all for the Americans, and I'm speaking now kind of speculatively because I haven't done the work on it, it would be the arrival of the Type Sevens. Um, um, and that was done, of course, by providing uh, milch cows, support U boats operating around Bermuda and. Um, uh, the Americans had worked a lot on undersea re uh, at sea replenishment in the 20s and 30s. So that concept wasn't new, but it may have been new to them to think that you could do it with a submarine. So most of it was uh, transfer of uh, diesel fuel, but there was some shifting of torpedoes as well. So once, but once you get beyond about the Bahamas, Gulf of Mexico, uh, Straits of Florida, um, sustaining a Type 7 in the Caribbean is, is really problematic. By the time you get there, everybody's beaten to death, and then they, you cook them in this little slow cooker in the Caribbean because it's designed for northern waters. Um, then you got to get it home, and that's the that's the thing they began to realize about submariners is if you're three thousand, four thousand miles away from home, and you punch a hole in the pressure hull, you're probably not getting home because you have to run on the surface. Uh, I think the Brits understood that. And in fact, when you look at uh, anti-submarine rockets, the swordfish rockets, they're just a 25-pound hardened uh, armor-piercing head. There's no explosions, explosive stuff on them. You just fire them at the submarine and it punches a hole in it. And then you got a real problem. Mark, I'm also keen to just, to, to, you know, talk about the uh, Royal Canadian Navy because uh, it strikes me that they're, they're some of the great unsung heroes of the, of the Atlantic War. I mean, they start off absolutely tiny. They grow you know, exponentially, really. And they definitely punch above their weight, you know, with, with yeah. the hours they put in, the time they put in, the conditions they battle, you know, as you're saying, you know, the, the, the Royal Navy hogs all the kind of all the all the cool kit and the new sleek fast destroyers. The, the Royal Canadian Navy is shackled with these sort of 
cruddy little corvettes which are all very well and everything but but you don't really want to be going out in the kind of northern atlantic in winter in them i mean it's it's a remarkable journey isn't it, it it's astonishing and, and the americans thought by the way when they first saw Canadian corvettes in the North Atlantic in the fall of 41, that the, uh, the crew should all get submarine pay because they spent as much time underwater as they did above it. Sorry, it's just worth just saying what a corvette is. I mean, so you, you, you have a destroyer is, what, a uh, 100, 100 uh, meters long, something like that? Something yeah, like so, yeah, something like that, and it weighs about fifteen, well, fifteen hundred to two thousand tons. Pretty yeah. small by modern standards, but a Corvette's crew of, like crew of what? About one hundred and twenty on a Corvette? No, on a on a destroyer. Oh, more like one hundred and forty, one hundred and sixty on a okay. on a destroyer. And, Corvette, and a Corvette is much smaller. Corvettes, uh, geez, I should know this. I, I, it's Corvettes shorter than a Type Seven submarine. So what would it be? It's like one hundred and fifty feet long. 700, 800 tons. I should know that. I wrote a book about Corvettes, but I don't have the tech specs on my, at my fingertips. It's really tiny. Um, Canadians complain that a Corvette would roll on um, on a wet lawn, on a dew, right? So they're, they're, they're designed for young men. When the Canadian Corvettes are built, it's true of the original British design, um, they had accommodation for about 35 guys. No refrigeration and designed to stay at sea maybe two days. You know, you pop out, do a little sweep around the harbor, come home. Um, by 1942, there are 100 men on board Corvettes in the Canadian Navy, 100 guys chucking wow. depth charges off the side, maintaining, you know, f uh, four watches and manning the guns and um, hot bunking. And it, it's, a, it's, it's a life for a young man. You know, Corvette captains in the Canadian Navy are all like 24, 25. I, I know some who are in their 30s and 40s. Alan Easton's a classic example, by the way. Uh, considered old men, almost grandpas, but everybody else um, is just starting to shave. So uh, I think one of the best ways to think about the Canadian Navy is the Canadian Navy in some ways provides the forces of position around which the, the bigger allies maneuver. And in fact, that's exactly the way excuse me, the Canadian Naval Staff defined its role in January of 42 when the world, when the war went global. There's a meeting they had and they said, look, we can't win the war. There's nothing we can do to win the war, but we can help the British and the Americans win the war. So we'll basically do whatever they ask. We'll go where they want us to go. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just keep driving her. And so the Canadians in some ways are kind of like the Italians in the Western desert. They, they allow the British to refit ships. They allow the British to train. They allow the British to carry the war to the U-boats. They allow the Americans to go to the Pacific. There's all this whining about, you know, often about, uh, the Canadians didn't do anything for the Americans. Well, if you go back to the agreement at Argentia, the Canadians actually backfilled for the Americans in the Western Atlantic, um, not just down to New York, but all the way to the Caribbean in places. So uh, we just kept stretching it thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner through 1942. The, um, the, the normal expectation was that you'd have about a third of your fleet in refit, repair, workups, training, all that kind of cool stuff. Uh, in the summer of 42, the RCN did well to get about 10% of its uh, fleet uh, away from operations. Uh, and then, and then the Brits complained that the Brits complained that it wasn't very well trained and not very well equipped. It's like, duh. <laughs> um, some of them knew that um, the uh, director of trade division in the Admiralty knew that the people who understood that the primary thing was to keep the convoy system running and keep it expanding so you work the Canadians to death 
it's people like Donald McIntyre, uh, who I respect enormously as an escort commander, who looked at the result of this and complained bitterly about what he saw. And he's absolutely right. I mean, there, there, there are some Canadian Corvettes where the only bridge watchkeeping officer is the captain. And if he falls asleep, they don't know where they are. Um, I have one a marvelous story I have to tell you about a, a gentleman I knew very well, Louis Odette, who was the commanding officer of HMCS Amherst, a uh, flower class Corvette. And uh, Louis complained to Admiral Murray in Halifax at one point that he was now captain of a ship, but he had never been given his watchkeeper's papers. And he'd been command of the ship for six months. So we thought, you know, maybe I should be tested because I'm navigating. And Murray said, well, here's what you do. You have your captain write me a letter saying that um, Lieutenant Louis C. Audette is a qualified bridge watchkeeper and I will have the papers issued. And Louis said, you don't seem to understand. I am the captain. And Murray said, you misunderstand me. You need to have your captain write you a letter on your behalf. So Louis sat down and wrote a letter and said, I certify that Lieutenant Louis Audette RCNVR, blah, blah, blah. And then signed it, Louis Audette, RCNVR, Captain HMCS Amherst. And the watchkeeper's papers came through. <laughs> so as, uh, as Nellie's once said, they're making bricks without straw, but they make the system work and they allow other people to do what needs to be done. And the Navy knew what it was doing. They knew that and they just drew it. We need to take a break right now. We'll see you in a tick. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. From what to what does the Navy, the expansion of the Royal Canadian Navy, what happens? So, because J- J- James has cited a figure on the podcast a couple of times that at the beginning of the war, they've, they've you know, a handful of ships and by the end it's it's in the hundreds. Yeah, okay, so the, the arc is this. The start of the war, there's about 1,500 RCN straight stripers, officers, NCOs and ratings manning uh, two bases and um, a half a dozen destroyers. At the end of the war, at its peak, at its peak, the RCN numbers something like 96,000 men and operates uh, 400 named ships. It's it's unbelievable. It's it's absolutely astonishing. It's a 50-fold expansion. And, and the, the Canadians are literally everywhere. You know, they're in Italy, they're in Northwest Europe, they're in Sicily, they're throughout the RAF. They have their own group, group in Bomber Command. You know, what, We're everywhere, what's, man. What's, We're what, everywhere. What, what, what's the population of Canada in 1939? It's like... 11 million. 11 million? Every yep. single man, a, every single man a volunteer, I think. Am I right in saying? Yes, absolutely. And uh, by uh, November of 1941, the Canadian economy has outstripped Italy in terms of GDP. And uh, it's still got three years to go before it peaks. So in terms of industrial capacity, it's in a league all its own. It's not like Britain and the U.S., but you drop down a little ways and there's Canada and then you kind of fall off the face of the earth and then there's everybody else. So we're actually outproducing Italy by the fall of 41 in terms of GDP. It's it's absolutely insane. It's it's a it's the most extraordinary effort, and it's one of those things that's it's a bit like New Zealand, you know. It's just you know, which is oh, even, yeah, exactly. it, it's even titchier. But but yep. the New Zealanders are also kind of absolutely everywhere, and it's just it it the Canadian effort is just so underappreciated. I mean, it's underappreciated on D Day stuff. I mean, people people kind of I mean that's for a separate conversation. But I mean, it's uh, 
How do they pull this off, though, Mark? I mean, uh, is there a, a core cadre of people who know exactly what they're doing and what they want? Do they do they muddle for a bit and, and figure out, or is it is it you know a, a, a rapid expansion and and then you get a grip on what's happening? How do they how do they make sure they're getting the right people and getting them into the right jobs? Well, it's, it remains to be determined if the right people get in the right jobs because it's all volunteer, right? So it's self selected. Although there was some um, there was some drafting in '43 that we can talk about. Um, no, the the, uh, the war starts off as a, uh, an attempt at a fairly modest war effort because Mackenzie King, the prime minister, does not want a repeat of the Great War. Uh, you may know that in the Great War, um, Canada really punched above its weight with the Canadian Corps. But by 1917, when the conscription gets uh, introduced, we have riots and apprehended civil war in Canada over uh, forced enlistment for the Western Front. Uh, so King says two things in the start of the war. He says, look, here's the deal. Three things. Um, small army. Very small, one division, I'm going to send you one division. Um, we're going to build airfields and we're going to support what was then the Imperial Air Plan, the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. Uh, but you Brits are going to pay for it, by the way, because Mackenzie King's a bit of a bastard that way. He doesn't want to spend Canadian money. So we're going to build infrastructure across Canada at Imperial expense. We're going to keep the Air Force home, training pilots so y'all can go die in the air over Europe. And then the Navy can expand. When, when Admiral Murray, who was then a captain, was chief of planning in 1940, um, went in to, um, to see the Minister of Defense and the Minister of Finance about, you know, what do we do? You know, we got, we got almost nothing. Can't build ships. What are we going to do? And um, the, the Minister of Finance says, you can have as much money as you want, whatever you want to do, but you have to be able to spend it in this fiscal year. So don't ask for more than you can spend. So when France falls, a couple of things happen. How's that for a good way to go? When France falls, a couple of things happen. One is the government basically says, okay, Britain's apparel. The army gets kind of a writ to uh, expand to two, then three, then four, then five divisions overseas, a bunch of armored brigades. Um, the Air Force uh, simply goes literally ballistic. They, the Air Force expands to a quarter of a million men from virtually a, a, a service that was involved in bush flying and mapping in the Canadian North. Um, and the Navy just is told, you know, whatever it takes, you know, what, if you can buy them, if you can lease them, if you can build them, build whatever you want. So the gloves come off in the summer of 1940 in an effort to basically preserve Britain from, um, from invasion and Britain from losing the war. Um, there, there is a, a choke on all of this in early 42, uh, when the war goes global. And once the Americans are in, there's a kind of sense in Ottawa that much like Churchill, okay, we're saved. Uh, American manpower, American industrial goods will eventually determine the outcome of this war. So what we need to do is choke back a little bit on enlistment, particularly for the army, put more men into industry, mobilize uh, uh, placate the demand for conscription by conscripting for home service. So we mobilize, I think it's four divisions for home service. And we actually send troops off to the Aleutian campaign, uh, who are conscripts for home defense. And they seem to think that Kiska is a long way from home, but there you go. Um, so he, he deflects that enthusiasm for getting a whole bunch of people killed in the army. And Dieppe helps with that, by the way. Um, puts people into the Air Force, which he sees as not casualty intensive. But he learns to regret that because the single biggest Canadian casualty bill is Bomber Command. Um, and he basically tells the Navy, just keep going. 
The only time he puts a, a, a halt on the Navy is in 1944, when it's clear that the Navy is increasingly using the war to leverage itself as a big, big by Canadian standards. Two task force, two carrier, two cruiser, dozen, 15, 20 fleet class destroyer, post-war Navy. Uh, and King doesn't want that. So he starts to put the brakes on, on naval expansion by 44. But otherwise... Um, uh, Canada does a remarkable job of developing industry, but also fielding an air force, which is which flies primarily British and American aircraft, obviously, because we only produce, I think, I think it's about 50,000 aircraft in Canada during the course of the war. Don't quote me. Uh, it, it's still, when you consider we hadn't produced really any, except a bunch of Gloucester gladiators and a few hurricanes before the war. Um, so it puts a break. Uh, so the air force is, is basically a function of, you know, allied air power. Uh, the Navy uh, is made up, in terms of raw numbers, uh, increasingly of Canadian-built, Canadian-equipped um, ships, from Corvettes to Bangor-class minesweepers to motor launches to river-class frigates uh, right through to the end of the war. And we're building tribal-class destroyers, which come late. We don't launch them until after the war ends. Um, but the King doesn't want aircraft carriers. Uh, he, he would like the Navy to be just destroyers and kind of coast defense. Sorry, I prattled on. No, 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 no. no, no. no that... I mean, to, but 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 technology is is a is obviously a huge part of the Atlantic War, and the development of technology. And and, and my own kind of theory on this is is that kind of Britain sort of prioritizes that and that requirement kind of more effectively than the Germans do. I guess obviously, but 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 it does. You know, right from the word go, it's kind of okay. We're we're a maritime nation. We we get sea power. We understand that, that, you know, the Atlantic is absolutely vital because if you can't get through the Atlantic, we haven't got anything. So we, we really need to kind of put all, you know, as much effort as we possibly can into into improving that. So, improve you know, improvements to kind of Hafta, high frequency direction finding, to weaponry, to, you know, a whole host of things. The, the cavity magnetron, which is obviously very, very important as well, both, you know, putting radar on ships but also on on aircraft as well i mean they're, they're just winning that war aren't they they're just winning that battle the battle of technological development in, in naval war uh, unquestionably and, and one of the key differences is and i read something years ago and i can't tell you chapter and verse where it is but um the germans never trusted civilians ultimately you know, you could have you could have Werner von Braun building your rockets, but ultimately it's the guys in uniforms who make the big decisions. And, and arguably that's the case on the British side, except they put people in lab coats in charge of stuff and they put politicians in as oversight. And then they'd have a big Donnybrook, maybe in war cabinet, and um, and the civilians would win out. And, and they, certainly at sea. Uh, and it's probably true of the Air Force as well. There's great trust in the scientists and what they were developing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how important sort of it was. Blackheads and people. Yeah. I mean, just think of PMS Blackhead. I mean, he, the stuff that he does was just wizard. I mean, he just, I mean, it boggles the mind, you know, count the number of ships, make the convoys bigger because submarines are only going to get one whack at it. And if you have three convoys and lose two ships from each convoy, that's six. But if you have one convoy and you lose two ships, your loss rate goes down. I mean, it's just simple stuff. And the Brits trusted their boffins. The Germans, if you read some of the literature on Dönitz, did not, not to the same extent. Yes, because they don't into they don't in uh, Rudolf Volter and people like this. The, the, Rudolf Volter, I think it is, isn't it? And um, the, the guy who's sort of coming up with what eventually becomes the Type Twenty One. Um, 
you know, he's got that technology before the war and it's not it's not given the priority at all, is it? No, but I think you need to be a little bit cautious about that because Dönitz has a has a weapon that fits his his concept of operations and his doctrine perfectly. It's a okay. it's a it's a robust, fairly fast, quick diving, uh, surface breathing submarine, and uh, it, it it doesn't it, it doesn't really fail him until the spring of forty three. But it's a progressive process. It's not an event. You um, you progressively, and the Brits understood this, I think, you progressively deny the Germans the opportunity to use the weapon they have. I've, I've argued yes. in some, one article somewhere that the spring of 1943 is like Trafalgar. I mean, when, when Villeneuve goes to see her, when, when Nelson turns up off of Cadiz, Cape Trafalgar, Villeneuve knows he's dead. There's nothing he can do. Um, when when Dönitz deploys his submarines in the spring of '43, the Type Sevens have to work because if they don't, he's got like 700 submarines he hasn't got any use for. So there's no other place to. No, sorry, at that point, 400 submarines. You have to deploy them, but he already knows that it's not. He's not using a cutlass. It's a rapier he's got now, and it can be broken. It's very fragile. And uh, and I've uh, written somewhere too that it's the Brits who crush him. The Brits. Western Approaches Command sees this, and they chuck caution to the wind in the spring of '43, and they actually find U-boat concentrations, and they reinforce a convoy, and they drive it straight into it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, because they, they and they know that they know they're reading the, the ultras, so exactly. they know that they, they end up actually essentially directing the U-boats onto the convoys, don't they? Yes, because um, they can it, kill them. It, 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 but, but also because they know they can know they can kill them. I just, oh, sorry, sorry, Jim. I mean, what's what's striking about this, Mark, is we often talk on this podcast about how, well, in the summer of 1943, it's the it's the it's the point at which the the Germans are only losing. There's 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 nothing for them to do but lose from that point. Uh, you know, after after you've had you, you have Hamburg, Kursk, um, Sicily, um, the invasion of Italy. Um, uh, you, you know, it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all losing from here on. That's the case in the Atlantic, isn't it? And, and they know this, right? Uh, but they carry on fighting. Because this is, after all, the, the the conundrum, isn't it, in the Second World War, is that the Germans reach the point, as you say, they lose a Trafalgar-style battle, as, uh, uh, analogous with Trafalgar in 1943. At which point, the French Navy essentially checks out of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, uh, uh, they know this. Donitz knows this, right? That he's lost. Yeah, well, he knows he's lost temporarily. I, I think the uh, the inability to shoot their way back into the convoys is a uh, is is a is a pretty hard knock for Donitz, and so he's putting his money on the Type Twenty Ones and the Type Twenty Threes, and um, to a certain extent on snorkel. And it just takes too long. The Type Twenty Ones and Twenty Threes take too long to develop. Um, but there are about a hundred Type Twenty Ones uh, um, completed by the spring of 45. And there's some lamenting in some British records that, gee, wouldn't have been really cool if this had lasted another month. We could have had to go some of these and see what they really like under operational conditions. Um, I, I don't think even 100 Type 21s, of which you've been able to maintain about a third at sea, would have tipped the war in the Germans' favor. It, they're just too overwhelmed by that stage in the war. But it would have been a nasty kind of third crisis in the Atlantic War. But the Allies had the resources by that point to uh, to, to overcome uh, the losses, certainly. Um, um, and there was, I but, say, but there some lamenting. 
Sorry. There is a certain amount of sort of frying caution to the wind after the Casablanca conference, isn't there? Because one of the first pieces, one of the first items on the agenda at Casablanca in January 1943 is to win the Battle of the Atlantic, is to make sure that, you know, that the U-boat menace is, is, is kind of largely put to bed. And of course, that's not because... That's a war-threatening situation. It's because you can't really plan if you don't know what shipping's coming over. You know, well, if you're going to do if you're going to do an operation like Husky or, well, dare I say, it, even Overlord, you need to know what's coming into the UK or you need to know what's coming into the Mediterranean. You can't do it if it, if you you know, fifteen percent, twenty percent, ten percent is going to hit the bottom. Well, the other thing is, and you're, you're quite right, James. Um, one of the things they discuss at uh, Casablanca is Operation Bolero which is the American buildup in the UK for the second front. And it's grossly behind by January of 43, in part because of the decision to go into the mid and, and pursue that strategy. Uh, but it's been hard to get the Americans to focus their attention on the buildup. Um, up to this point, and it's part of the project I'm working on now, the Americans have been just browbeating the British into launching the second front. But they're playing with house money. Um, there, there are no American troops in the UK. It's all British and Canadian. And they just want them to, I don't know, chuck them on the beach somewhere, see what happens. Well, the Americans are supposed to come and, and do some of that. Uh, unfortunately, they got distracted in North Africa and then eventually they'll end up in Sicily. But um, so if you want to have a second front anytime, you need to resolve the problem of the North Atlantic. And you're absolutely right. Uh, and part of that is making sure that the Brits can, can import what they need to sustain the war effort. Well, and also by the... By the, the by the time Overlord's underway, you're shipping soldiers straight to the beachheads across the Atlantic, aren't you? You can't afford to have that go wrong. No, uh, the Americans start build-up convoys. There's a series called the CUUC series that comes straight out of New York and I think out of ports in Maine that runs parallel to the main transatlantic convoys. And that's basically what they do to, to increase the, the rate of build-up in Bolero is they start basically with military convoys. And they're under USN escort, and they're carrying tanks and equipment and supplies, little trains for the English rail system and all that kind of stuff. They're just chucking stuff into the UK whenever they can get it. And actually, in the spring of 43, what they're doing is building up the Air Force for the, for the bombing campaign because they don't have any army to send yet. But the Americans start shipping their own stuff, uh, as well as what's in the transatlantic convoys. So there's a, there's a, there's a double-track system running. I mean, just the scale of it all is um, uh, it's staggering. Uh, it, it's complete. It is completely staggering when you get. And I mean, the, the, when we talk about total tonnage is sunk, those are those are you know those are not figures to be sniffed at. And yet there are and yet there are a small percentage of total tonnage shipped. It's the thing that the, the, the sheer giant you know ginormous is a. Is a, is, I think, a word that does the job. I mean, it's the sheer scale of it. Well, the Americans produced something like 14 million tons of merchant shipping in 1943 alone. That's twice the size of their of their pre-war merchant fleet. And uh, the, there are already discussions in 44 with, well, what the hell do we do with all this? We now have more merchant shipping. The Americans have more merchant shipping by 44 than almost the rest of the world combined. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and, and they're, the making, they're making Liberty ships in five days, 16 hours and 24 minutes or whatever it is. You know, yeah, I got to tell you a story about that. I interviewed uh, Admiral Schofield once about that because I uh, went by and interviewed him. He's director of trade division through much of the war, uh, now long dead, very kind gentleman. And he said, you know, I went, to, uh, I went to Henry Kaiser once because we needed rescue ships for the North Atlantic. 
And um, he's a big man with a chest and a watch fob and big cigar, he said. And uh, so uh, being a Brit, um, Schofield goes over and trying to chats him up and um, says, you know, wouldn't it be grand if we had more rescue ships for the North Atlantic? And Kaiser took a big suck on his cigar and said, well, Admiral, how many do you think you need? And, and, and again, being a typical Brit, he thought, geez, if we had 10, we'd be lucky. But this is an American. we got to go big. So he said, I said, ah, oh, well, you know, uh, 25 or 30 would be a good number. Kaiser kind of looked down, took another draw on his cigar and said, well, if you'd said 300, we could tool up, but we're not going to build 30. And he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> and Schofield said he just he didn't know what to say. He's just flabbergasted. Yeah, absolutely so amazing. Well, Kaiser was incredible, wasn't he? I mean, he's an extraordinary kind of force of nature. This guy who's who's made his his career in the interwar years sort of building dams and and roads and 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 so on and when the british shipbuilding commission come to him and say you know we need we need some new um shipbuilding yards he just goes well how hard can it be and well, yeah, they're they're all like, greenfield well, it's, too, it's right? quite it's quite it's quite difficult actually and he gets ah that'll be fine and they could literally make them in three months don't they i mean one at one on the east coast one at um portland maine and, and one just north of san francisco i mean it's just absolutely astonishing and off they go just pick a greenfield site and start laying it out no it, it's it's quite staggering the interesting thing about all that new production, much of it ordered by the British under Lend-Lease, is by the time the Americans come into the war, if you if you read um, Kevin Smith's book, Convict on Convoys, uh, which I recommend to you, um, it's the U.S. chiefs of staff that take control over the allocation of new American merchant ship construction. And they refuse to give any to the British. Even though so the I Liberty know, ship is ultimately a British design as well. I yeah, mean, and the Americans don't want it because it's coal-fired. They're, they're building steam turbine engines. Yeah, well, fired the design of it is the, the, the... Forget about the power plant for a moment, but the actual design of it, the kind of... the, 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 the Oh, yeah. Yep. It's, it's, it's British. British design, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and the Americans do build them for themselves, but they're, they're, uh, they have a 20,000... No, 10,000 ton uh, uh, diesel steam turbine... Uh, ship that they prefer. Incidentally, when the um, when, when the when the Americans refused, despite Roosevelt's protestations over the winter of 42-43, that the British should be given some of the allocation that they're supposed to get under the International Allocation Board, uh, he finally comes up to Canada and buys 80 Liberty ships built in Canada to fulfill America's commitment to Britain's shipping needs. So virtually all of our ship construction goes to the UK, but it goes through Lend-Lease, which keeps the Canadian government happy because it earns us American dollars, which is pretty critical. So uh, just, to, just, to, just to hop back, you were saying the Americans are wondering what on earth to do with all this shipping in 1944. What did they decide to do? Well, you know, I can't tell you I haven't got that far. Um, all right. Uh, but uh, <laughs> there, is, there is a glut, and they realize, uh, in reading the American accounts, that, that um, some of the key countries that they're going to liberate, like Greece and Norway and Britain, uh, Britain's going to be liberated, uh, the Netherlands, re require shipping to earn their foreign currency so they can be a trading nation. And uh, I'm not quite sure how that gets resolved, but the Americans know that if everybody's broke, they can't buy from them. So they have to find a way. And ultimately, of course, the Marshall Plan comes along and bails everybody out because if people don't have any money, the American economy tanks too. Well, my friend Peter Levanos, who's a Greek shipping magnate, I mean, you know, his father before him bought a, you know, he got a whole load of Liberty ships from the Americans at the end of the war. And that's where he made his, you know, it's one of the reasons why he built up such a successful shipping business. 
So well, and if you, the, the 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 key costs are crew costs at that point, and if you can uh, if you can do that, you can carry stuff. You're good to go. That's what uh, the Canadian the Canadian Merchant Navy was really quite substantial at the end of the Second World War, and we just sold it off in '47 because we just didn't want to wrestle with uh, Siemens unions and uh, and all the issues of of paying you know um, the costs of you know, of an industrialized wage from a, a modern industrial state to merchant sailors. Wow. Well, Mark, this has wow. been absolutely fantastic, and um, I I feel. Actually, there's a whole load more to be said on shipping and the Atlantic War before we get to Normandy. But maybe we should do Normandy, then go back to the Atlantic. But anyway, I, I really, I, I <laughs> really, really like, hope, I really like James. I'm good. I, I, re I really hope you'll come back on and, and come back on in quick order because that's been absolutely fantastic. What a fascinating 45, 53 minutes we've had. 53 minutes. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks everybody for listening. Cheers. We'll see you all soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.